We read the sacred scriptures tonight from Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, we're going to begin reading at verse 10, and we'll read through verse 31. Our text is going to be verses 21 through 28. I'm not going to reread that section again, but we'll begin reading at verse 10. And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. And Jesus said, Are ye also yet without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the drought? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man." Now begin the words of our text for tonight. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her, Not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, and the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21 of the text tells us that Jesus left Israelite territory and went to Tyre and Sidon. If you can somewhat recall the map 
of Palestine in your mind. And if you can imagine this as the Sea of Galilee, and down here is the Dead Sea, Tyre and Sidon are up here in the northwest along the Mediterranean Sea. The region is the region of Phoenicia. It's Gentile territory. In the context of our text, the Lord has been receiving repeated faithless responses to his teaching and to his miracles that begins already back in the previous chapter, chapter 14, where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and you remember the response of the people to Jesus feeding the 5,000. First of all, they want to make him king, an earthly king, and set him up on an earthly throne. But then when he refuses that, we read that they departed from him. They turned away from him, a faithless response. And these continue in chapter 14. After that event, the next one is that the Lord walks on the water to his disciples who are in that little fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee. And Peter, seeing Jesus walking on the water, wants to do that himself, gets out, and as long as he's looking in faith at the Lord, he walks upon the water, but as soon as he turns away and is full of doubts, he begins to sink. And the Lord says to him, O ye of little faith, why do you doubt? In our chapter, chapter 15 at the beginning, the Pharisees accuse Jesus and his disciples of sin because they ate a meal without washing their hands first. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a man, but it's what comes out from the heart that defiles a man. The Pharisees are faithless. They don't believe or understand what he's saying. But then Peter himself does not understand and asks the Lord, what does this mean? And the Lord has to respond to Peter, are you also still yet without understanding? And that's when we read the first word of verse 21, then. Then the Lord, after all of these faithless responses, he leaves Israel and he goes to Gentile territory to this particular woman whom he knows is great in faith. And you see, her faith is supposed to stand in stark contrast to these responses of the Pharisees that are utterly void of faith and of the disciples that have faith, but it's weak. The faith of this woman is a lesson for the disciples and a lesson for us. Here is faith. A deep sense of one's own unworthiness before Jehovah God. A confession and a casting of oneself entirely upon Jesus Christ for all hope and a confession of him as the Lord of my life. May God give that to us as we prepare tonight and this week to come, to come to the table of the Lord next Sunday morning. We'll take up the text under the theme tonight, Faith for a Crumb. That's this woman's faith, faith for a crumb, an exposed faith, a beautiful faith, and an answered faith.
Mark's account of this story, which is the only parallel account of this history, tells us that when Jesus got to the Gentile territory to which he was going, he entered into a house. And while he is in this house, this Gentile woman from this Gentile land is either there or comes in. And this woman who knows Jesus already and knows him fairly well, knows something of his miracles and of his preaching and knows something, as we'll see, of the scriptures, actually quite a bit of the scriptures. This woman comes and recognizing him or hearing that it's him who's there, she falls at his feet and cries out, asking him to heal her daughter. The response that the Lord gives to this woman is one of the most unusual and on the surface of it, strangest things in the entire New Testament. There is no parallel in Jesus' recorded life and ministry to the response that he gives to this woman. Normally, if someone came to him with a deep humility, a sense of their own sin and their own need, and faith that trusted in him, his response was to have pity upon them. Of course, he had harsh words for the Pharisees. But the Pharisees are puffed up in pride and with stubbornness they won't acknowledge that he is the Messiah and humble themselves before Jehovah God, but for the needy and the broken who know their neediness and who come before him, he always had gentle words and was happy to heal those who came to him that way or who brought others to him that way. Luke 4, verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with divers diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And then notice right after our text, after his treatment of this woman. This is why I read tonight beyond our text through verse 31. Look what verse 30 says. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. But to this woman, he seems to be so cold, and let's be honest about it, downright rude in the way that he interacts with her. There are three stages to the interaction between Jesus and this woman. And in each stage, the response of the Lord gets more and more frigid. In the first stage of their interaction, he simply ignores her. In verse 22, she cries out to him, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. And that would normally be a point, of course, where the Lord would turn to someone like this with compassion and with pity and heal them. But in this case, we read his response in the next verse, verse 23, but he answered her not a word. How cold this seems to be. And when you understand that in the Greek text, it makes clear that this woman doesn't just say this once, crying out to him, help me, 
Lord, have mercy on me, O son of David. But she's repeating it over and over again as though she's trying to get his attention. And maybe the Lord just does one of these or talks to somebody else. He doesn't answer her a word as she's there repeatedly crying out to him. What's going on here? If he gives her the cold silence first in their second stage of their interaction, he gives her the cold shoulder. The disciples themselves get tired of her constantly crying out and seeing that he doesn't answer her. They finally say to him, verse 23, send her away. She keeps crying after us. Send her away. And it seems in verse 24 that that's exactly what the Lord does. Understand that verse 24 is not spoken to the disciples. That wouldn't make any sense. It's spoken to her. I am not sent unto the lost, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, he's saying to her, I'm not sent to the likes of you, to your people. You're a Gentile woman from a Gentile pagan land. I haven't been sent by God to minister to you. I'm supposed to minister to the Jews, and you're not a Jew. And that was, of course, true, generally speaking. The Apostle Paul would say it later in Romans 15, verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. When Christ came in his earthly ministry, he was a minister of the circumcision of the Jews. He was sent to the Jews in the main. That was the purpose of his ministry. Of course, He would be the light that would lighten the Gentiles. What old Simeon said about him when he held the Christ child in his arms in the temple was true. Remember what Simeon said? Quoting from Isaiah, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles. And yes, That is what he was. But that would come, that light would spread out of Israel's borders to the Gentiles, mainly after the Lord's death and resurrection. That middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile that was there in the Old Testament would come down after his death and resurrection, especially. But during his earthly ministry, before his death and resurrection, he was sent even to the Jews, the people of God in the Old Testament. You're not a Jew. I wasn't sent to you. Go away. But she doesn't go away. She keeps crying after him. And so finally, the Lord gives her, it seems, not merely cold silence or a cold shoulder, but a nice cold jab. Verse 26. It is not meet. It is not appropriate. It is not fitting 
to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Did he just... He did. He called her a dog. All the Gentiles, but this is the only Gentile to whom he's speaking. This is astounding. Sometimes people like to point out that the specific word used for dog refers to a small dog. And so maybe the Lord isn't thinking of some mangy mutt that's roaming the streets, but perhaps he's referring to a small pet dog or something, and that could be true, that's possible, and maybe that has a touch of meaning to it, but all the same, he called her a dog. Understand what he's saying. He's saying the Gentiles are pagans, and they're like the dogs. And the meal that's on the table, the bread, that's the blessings of the covenant. And the master is God and me, Christ. And the children who have a place at the table, that's the Jews. And that was true, generally speaking, too, of course, at this point before his death and resurrection. At the beginning of Romans 9, the Apostle Paul said it again, For I wish I could myself be accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. The Israelites were the people of God in the Old Testament. And housed amongst them was the knowledge of these truths of adoption and the covenants and the promises of Jehovah God. All the blessings of which are the bread that's on the table. And now you don't just set a meal upon the table, do you? And gather all your children around to sit around that table for the meal and as soon as they sit down you don't take the food and set it on the ground and open the door for the dogs to come in and eat that meal it's not appropriate for me come now and grant your request this is astounding Why does the Lord speak this way? Even if that is true to a certain extent generally in the Old Testament times. This is transition period. And Jesus himself recognizes this of course. Look at the way he spoke to the Samaritan woman. Who is also not a true Jew. Recognizing that there is a transition happening He says to her, the day is coming and now is when you won't worship at the temple in Jerusalem anymore, but everyone will worship wherever they are in spirit and in truth. Why doesn't he speak to her this way? 
recognizing the transition. Why doesn't he acknowledge, understand, that even though these things are true, it's never been so rigid that there couldn't be a Ruth and there couldn't be a Rahab as there was in the Old Testament. And why does he speak to her, this individual who would maybe be a Ruth or a Rahab like this? What's going on? Why does he treat her this way with all this cold language? Well, some liberal theologians will say that this is proof that Jesus sinned. He wasn't sinless after all. Here is a crack in his armor. He was probably tired, cranky, and he didn't want to deal with this woman, and so he was mean and rude and racist to her, and that's the answer. Blasphemy, though it is, that's what they say. There are other more liberal theologians and preachers who won't go that far as to say that Jesus sinned here, but they'll say that he did make a mistake and that Jesus was ignorant. He was narrow-minded at this point and that this woman opened his mind and taught him a lesson that Jesus at this point himself did not understand that his gospel was going to go beyond Israel to the border beyond that border to the Gentiles, that he had no idea that any Gentile would receive his gospel. And that this woman, by showing her faith, taught him something, really opened his mind to something that he didn't know. I quote, Jesus was converted that day to a larger vision of the commonwealth of God, end quote. And again, Jesus came to believe what the Gentile woman taught him, and quote, these notions are sheer unbelief and don't take into account the facts of Scripture. The Lord Jesus, beloved, knows very, very well the broadness of his kingdom that goes beyond Israel's border to the Gentiles. He knows this from the prophets. It's all over. The prophets, Isaiah, the prophets speaking in the Psalms, he knows this as is obvious in his own interaction with the Samaritan woman, that he understands this. He doesn't need to be taught this. But, there are people with him who need to be taught this. The disciples. And that's what this is all about. They need to understand that God is going to draw his people from outside the borders of Israel, and that the Israelites, the Jews, are going to reject him as part of God's plan so that the word goes to the Gentiles. It's getting close to the time when the Lord's going to be taken by wicked hands and crucified. In the very next chapter, Jesus will tell them how his death is about to come. And the Lord now at the end of his ministry knows that he must prepare his disciples for the fact that though it is not his own main calling in his ministry upon the earth to go to the Gentiles, it is going to be theirs after his death and resurrection. And he's showing them, taking them outside Israel's borders to show them that there's faith, God worked faith even among Gentiles, astounding faith, great faith, Deep faith that God works in them and works in them even in spite 
of the way that Jews think of them and the way that Jews treat them. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, back in chapter 10, verse 5, the Lord sent his apostles out to teach and to preach, and he told them not to go to the Gentiles. In fact, he used this same language. Go not into the way of the Gentiles, into any city of the Samaritans. Enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But now it's at the end of his ministry and close to the time when he's going to die and rise again. And these disciples have to have some exposure to faith in a Gentile to see that These things are changing now that God is bringing his gospel outside of the borders and to the ends of the earth. This is why he came here, to show them this woman's faith and to teach them. What great faith looks like and that it can be found even in a Gentile. This explains, you see, why Jesus speaks to her the way that he does. He's speaking to her exactly like he knows they are thinking about her and the way that they would speak to her if they opened their mouths. Jews always called Gentiles dogs. That's the way they referred to them. And Jesus is showing them, even though you think of these people this way, God has his people here. What an astounding lesson for them. Don't forget, beloved, that Jesus knew what was in the hearts of all men. John 2, verse 25, And he needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man, and he knew what was in this woman. He knew the faith that was in her. He knew that it was great faith. And he is using this to teach his disciples and to show this woman's faith to the disciples to expose her faith, to allow it to come out. How are these disciples going to believe that this woman genuinely has faith, that she's not just one of the crowds that wants to get something from him? Unless he says these things to her, the things that they're thinking about her, and yet her faith still remains strong. How will he expose before them the persistence of her faith, that this is real faith, that it won't be turned away, Unless he speaks to her this way, and her faith continues. So that they see that though a Gentile and though rebuffed, she has come into this house where the Lord was with persistent faith, falling at the Lord's feet, crying out to him, in humility and need. Is that why you have come into this house where Jesus may be found tonight? You Gentiles, to fall at his feet, Lord, Again and again and again, Lord, help me.
99.9% of people know 100% of people, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, would have responded by saying, forget you, and would have ran out the door. Presenting this difficulty to her faith. A dog? And this is the friend of sinners, supposedly? Ignoring me? Well, fooey on you. We have obstacles to our faith too. And they come from Him. Sometimes it feels like He doesn't answer. He hears, He knows, and He is answering, but sometimes it feels like He's ignoring us. Sometimes in His sovereignty, He gives us such obstacles, such difficulties. Can it really be, Lord, that Thou hast put this in my life, that I am to receive this from Thee? This is a hard thing to receive from Thee, Lord, to have this in my life. Consider, beloved, if part of the reason, not all of it, but part of it, is to expose the faith that he's given to you as beautiful, humble, persistent faith. This woman's God-given faith is astounding. It burns bright and warm as the Lord knew it would when he exposed it by his cold treatment of her. Let's take now her three responses to the Lord Christ, but in the opposite sequence. First of all, in contrast to the cold jab of the Lord, the woman responds with a warm humility. It is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs, Christ had said, and she said. And now, you've read over that tonight. I've said it once in the sermon already. But does it hit you? Who would respond this way? Put a line there and write in what you think people would say. What you would be tempted to say by nature in response to that. And she said, it's true, Lord. Truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Instead of being puffed up in pride, how dare he... She absorbs it, in fact. She even owns it. And she doesn't skip a beat. And the response of her heart is true. Truth, Lord. From the perspective for her of the fact that the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law don't belong to her. I'm not a Jew but also from this perspective, that I'm a sinful woman. 
And I'm a wretch in my own self, in thy sight. And I don't have the rights to receive anything from you in myself by nature, Lord. You know, beloved, you can't really demean the people of God according to their nature, spiritually. We already think of ourselves as already way down there by nature. In Christ, totally different matter. But who I am by nature, I don't have anything to bring to him. There's nothing in me that that would give me the right to receive his mercy and his grace. There's nothing that I can appeal to in myself to make him turn toward me and say, yes, you deserve for me to give you my mercy. You realize this is what the Reformed faith says of you, right? Is this not what total depravity means? It means that like a dog has no rights to what's on the table. You have no spiritual right before God for any of his blessings, of his mercies, of his graces. You own that? I'm a dog before the Lord by nature spiritually. I don't have the rights to the table. I don't have the rights to that table next Sunday morning either in myself. Nothing. And yet, because I know how needy I am, Lord, sometimes dogs get crumbs. Do you have a crumb for me, Master? I don't deserve even that. But is there a crumb of thy grace for me? Sometimes it's the case, is it not, Master? That the Master will wipe some crumbs off the table onto the floor, and and who forbids the dogs then to come and to lick up a few crumbs? Sometimes it's the case, is it not, that the children at the table don't really understand what is before them, that they're presumptuous about it, that they don't realize what is right before them and how marvelous it is, and that it was given to them not because they deserved it either, but for grace's sake alone. And sometimes because they don't understand, they handle it in a presumptuous way and some crumbs fall onto the table and you wouldn't forbid. Master, would you a dog from then licking up a crumb? Is there a crumb, Lord, of mercy for me? A warm humility in contrast, the cold jab. Second, notice her warm appeal in spite of the Lord's cold shoulder. Verse 25, Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. She worshipped him, 
she got on her knees or flat on her face before him, kissed his feet or kissed his hand hanging down, worshipped him, and she cast herself entirely upon him. Lord, help me. You could read all the dogmatics books, all the faithful ones that have been written through the history of the church, beloved, and that would be a profitable thing to do as they describe faith. But they can't summarize faith any better than this. I have nothing and I have no rights before thee, Lord, and yet I need everything and I know that thou art the only source of what I need. Lord, Please help me, and I'm not going to stop crying out. She persists with true, active faith. She casts herself again and again and will not be turned away. His cold shoulder does not stop her. His cold jab does not send her away, and neither does his cold silence. Finally, notice her warm confession in contrast to the Lord's cold silence. What makes her faith? Humble so that she sees herself as she is by nature. What makes her faith active and persistent so that she casts herself upon him time and time again and will not be sent away? It's not only that she knows herself appropriately by nature, but it's also that she knows him appropriately. who he is. Lord, have mercy on me, thou son of David. What a confession. Lord, the king, the one who owns my life, the one who's sovereign over my life, whose law rules me, before whom I bow. Son of David, that's a messianic reference. And it's a very Jewish messianic reference. This woman knows the scriptures somehow, though a Gentile. And she knows the Old Testament prophecies that said that the Messiah would come from the line of David and would have this title, Son of David. merciful. Have mercy on me. And she won't stop. Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David, because she knows the Messiah, when he comes, is merciful. He has mercy for sinners who know their sin and their neediness and cast themselves upon him And so this is her appeal to him. She doesn't appeal to her own background. She can't appeal to her Jewishness. She's not Jewish. She can't appeal to the fact that to her people belonged the adoption and the covenants and the promises. She can't appeal to the fact that she has some right to the master's table because she knows she doesn't. All she can appeal to is that thou art the Messiah. You are God himself come in human flesh before me. And before you, I see that I am nothing but a sinner and I deserve nothing. And yet I know who you are. 
You're merciful to sinners. And so I'm going to keep casting myself upon your mercy. We live in a culture, beloved, that is a culture of entitlement. I deserve, but I have the right. And sometimes that can be brought into the church. Sometimes it can be brought even into our own relationship with God. And though we'd never say it, I have the right to your grace, God. I have the right to your mercies. You owe me after all those times that I came to church. You owe me. He doesn't owe us anything. If he does, it's not grace anymore. And as soon as we think that he owes us something, we've just gutted the very thing that we love, grace. Because grace is entirely undeserved. Are you going to come here next Sunday morning as though you deserve what's on this table and the reality that it typifies? Or are you going to come humbled? Lord, in myself, by nature, I don't have the right to sit at this table and I don't have the right to the bread and the wine that's on it and the body and blood of Jesus Christ that it typifies. And I don't deserve any of it. But Lord, perhaps a crumb will fall from that table to an undeserving sinner such as me. Come that way, beloved. Come that way. Pray in this week that you come that way, in that frame, prepared to receive grace as it is, undeserved, humbled, repentant, letting go of all of your sin and casting yourself entirely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And pray that the children and the grandchildren will be able to come to that table in that way someday too. Don't forget that the woman is ultimately praying and beseeching the Lord for the healing of her daughter who is vexed with the devil who is under the influence of the evil one and does not every grandparent and every parent and every uncle and aunt and every cousin or every member who isn't related except by the power of the Spirit. Don't we all pray this for all the children of the church?
that God grows them to come with faith this way, to come into the consistory room and confess their faith and come to the table of the Lord through that this way. Lord, I don't deserve any of thy grace. Though I've grown up in a church, heard about adoption and the promises and the covenants and the promises that are to the children of the church. I don't deserve it. But I cast myself entirely upon the Lord Jesus Christ and for His mercy. I know He'll hear me because He's merciful. The Lord heard the woman His purpose was accomplished. He exposed her faith, humble faith, persistent faith. And the Lord answered her faith in the end. And he did so right in front of those disciples who must have been amazed by the woman, her actions, and by the things that were coming out of her mouth and who also must have been cut to the quick by what she was saying and also by what the Lord says in answer to her faith. They have been hearing things from the Lord like, O ye of little faith, why do you doubt? But to this woman, he says, Woman, great is your faith. This is great faith in the eyes of the Lord. A deep humility at one's own unworthiness, letting go of one's own rights and of one's own sins and humble repentance and casting oneself upon the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for mercy, calling him Lord, the king of my life. In the way of that God-given faith, the woman found healing that very hour. O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. May we hear such a word from the Lord Jesus next Sunday morning coming to this table. Well, it's my gift to you, your faith, and I've worked it in you, worked in you. It's your faith. Great is your faith. And though we can hardly even bear to hear that, come humbled, needy, broken. Lord, help me. He will heal you of the guilt, of the power, and of the shame of sin. And he'll say to you, I've given you a place at this table in the way of that faith I gave you. No dog merely, but a son and a daughter, and not just a crumb but a whole loaf for you of the abundance of my graces and my mercies. Amen. Father, bless thy word to our hearts, strengthen our faith, and give us hope in thee and a faith that is a humble and casting faith. In Jesus' name, amen.